Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. You're listening to the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast. It's Wednesday, November the 16th, and you're very welcome to the weekly politics podcast from the Irish Times. I am Hugh Linehan. Before we start, do remember that you can find all our shows on irishtimes.com slash podcast, or you can make sure that you'll never miss a new installment by subscribing on iTunes or on your preferred podcast provider. One week on from the election of Donald Trump as the 45th president of the United States, we're still coming to terms with what this extraordinary political event means for all of us. Later on in this podcast, I'll be talking to the author of a new book about the apparently inexorable rise of political populism in Europe and America since the economic crash of 2008. But first, there are many threads to what we've seen unfold over the last seven days, and we did want to unpick some of them today. I'm joined in studio by my Irish Times colleagues, political correspondent Harry McGee, media correspondent Laura Slattery and our social media editor David Cochran. David, first to you. So one issue which has been the subject of much debate in recent days in the wake of the election has been a question of fake news uh, being disseminated through social network sites, particularly through Facebook. Um, David, what is the news about fake news? Well, the real reason is that there have been a, a huge number of uh, uh, sites, uh, particularly with a conservative uh, bias, but not exclusively, um, that have been in support of Trump, that have been producing fake news uh, on their own websites and then uh, producing like farms of Facebook pages where those stories are then getting posted to and encouraging people then that have their sort of their confirmation confirmed about the campaign. They'll go and they'll share it to their uh, to their own friends. Can you give me an example of that? The, I think the most popular one is the Denver Post, I think it's called. Um, it's not actually a, sorry, Denver I Guardian. it's a Denver Guardian. Denver because, Guardian. And that's, a, that's a actually key a good point. Because yes, Denver Post are. is a real newspaper. Yeah, it is. And actually, um, if you go to the Den- Denver Post, the Denver Guardian itself doesn't actually have a Facebook page. It's a website. And lots of other Facebook pages exist to uh, to copy the news. But if you go to the Denver Post's Facebook page, there are lots of people rating the page saying, I can't believe you produced this terrible news. And at the, at the moment... Poor Denver Post. And their top pin story is... We're not the Denver Guardian. Right. So, I mean, this raises a whole bunch of questions. Or, I mean, one is actually whether whether this particular phenomenon has any real impact, I suppose, on the politics or, you know, the the electoral outcome that, you know, that, that we saw last week. And I suppose the answer to that is who the, who, who the hell knows. But it does tap into a, a broader uh, question about the way in which people consume uh, information these days and how they make an analysis on how trustworthy that, that information might be. Yeah, I mean, mean, this does come back to Facebook. Um, Mark Zuckerberg said at the weekend he didn't think that the fake news that had been uh, distributed via Facebook had been an influence. But I think, you know, privately, just even by the sheer number of meetings that Facebook has held internally, we can see that they are worried about their role in in this election. Um, I would distinguish, as as Dave was was going through the categories there, I would distinguish between, say, sites that are so biased that they publish misleading uh, content and these sites that are set up purely to uh, get ad cash, you know, via Google AdSense, and they are set up 
their, their, their entire raison d'etre is to, to bait, the, bait people with, with fake uh, headlines. It is the industrial, industrialised fake news that is the real distinguishing factor this time around. But unfortunately, it is tying in with a greater uh, distrust uh, uh, of the media uh, and uh, just uh, kind of, I think, well, unfortunately, uh, there's, a, there's a lack of education um, that has come into play in, in this in this How election. Do you mean? Well, I just want to give an example of, of birtherism, which wasn't really, you know, the huge uh, factor at this time around this election. But obviously, this was uh, the, these, these were the the lies spread in the past that uh, Barack Obama was not born in uh, the US. And first of all, you know, first of all, we've had the the recent thing that 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 you know Trump has denied that he had he didn't uh, that he uh, you know pushed this when he's been shown that it has. He actually blamed Hillary Clinton, he blamed Hillary Clinton for yeah, which it. is not you know Clinton herself had nothing to do with that original um, argument. And you know, site like Breitbart News has certainly published, published stories that suggest that she did. So you know, basically, shut up, stop blaming Trump. But to go back further in time, um, you know, Barack Obama produced his birth certificate, and still people said this is a conspiracy. He wasn't born in Hawaii, and other people, I'm afraid, said, okay, but Hawaii isn't in the U.S. This is what this is what I'm talking about. Lack of education here. They don't believe. They believe it's a foreign country, and therefore it's probably. How can you trust what foreign doctors say and what foreign uh, bureaucrats say in in Hawaii? And that's sort of the level of, unfortunately, um, uh, just l- lack of information and lack of education. So, so I'm just trying just trying to figure out exactly what's being talked about this particular controversy in relation to Facebook. For example, there's a report in BuzzFeed yesterday evening which suggested that there's a bit of a kind of a mini insurrection going on among some. Facebook staff at, at what they see as, as, as Mark Zuckerberg's inadequate re- response to this. Are we talking here about these kind of clickbait farms based in Macedonia and places like that, which you're referring to, or about stuff like Breitbart? I saw, for example, an article on Breitbart last night, which purported to show an electoral map of how the United States had voted, and it was clearly skewed. It was, it was false. It was, uh, it, it, you know, it, 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 it wasn't just pushed in a certain direction. It was inaccurate and was being shared hundreds of thousands of times. Yeah, I, I, this is the problem that Facebook has. And they haven't helped, I don't think, they haven't helped themselves by over the course of the year trying to distance themselves from any kind of, you know, human involvement in, in this and, and relying on algorithms rather than, you know, having human uh, teams managing their trending topics and so on. They've tried to say this is nothing to do with us. We're not a publisher. Uh, but they're so huge and so dominant. I don't think they're going to be able to continue on with that position. I think they are going to have to be more active, more responsible. And that's clearly what some people within Facebook believe they should be, that they can't actually sit back on this. They have to uh, take some sort of stance because um, the other is- issue is, of course, with the algorithm, uh, which we might be talking about later, is that it, you know, once you, you know, you, if you click and, and like on, on, on the Denver Guardian, you're going to get more from the Denver Guardian in your feed. So, you know, you're not just going to happen to see one post from the Denver Guardian or Amer- I think there's one called AmericanNews.com. Uh, <coughs> you're going to keep on getting them. And therefore, that's your world. So it becomes view. this self-reinforcing tunnel vision, which I think all of us have seen, Harry, in one way or another, depending upon 
our social, you know, circle or or <coughs> digitally and on social media, that that certain kinds of stuff, you know, crops up in your feed, and you don't actually control it. You do, you can control it with Twitter, but not with Facebook. Not with Facebook. And um, I, I was making an argument for for old media <laughs> this morning when we were talking before the broadcast in terms of newspapers, but it's not an argument that's compelling with people who are no longer willing to dish out one ninety or two euro. Uh, for a copy of a newspaper but when you lay uh, a broadsheet paper across your kitchen table you'll read stuff that you're interested in but you'll also be drawn to stuff that you might not necessarily think you're interested in and then you start reading it and then once you read it you find out that you're actually interested in and it kind of broadens uh, your perspective That's the serendipity argument the counter argument to it is that all newspapers have ideological biases of one sort or another and people tend to choose a newspaper that fits with their own bias Absolutely I take that and every, every, every medium has its own limitations but the limitations for Facebook and for Twitter and for 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 other social media haven't been fully uh, exposed and it's good to see that we're looking at for example I mean Twitter has been during the British general election Twitter Twitter was described as an echo chamber where people were just reinforcing the same view over and over again and the the um, the the belief that went out after the British election that Facebook was a more open kind of medium where, where it wasn't as constrained. But the evidence from the American election, and as Laura and David were saying there, is that you, you're getting that type of, of uh, tr- t- uh, tendency happening in Facebook as well, where Laura was talking about uh, the, the Denver Guardian there. If you read one story by the Denver Guardian, the algorithms they use will know that that's the type of story that you like. Mm-hmm. So they keep on feeding you. It's almost like a, a drug addiction. They keep on feeding you so that you keep on chasing that particular uh, 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 dragon. And that, to me, is, is a dangerous tendency because it, the, the, it, it's a, a social uh, media uh, owner and publisher uh, very subtly manipulating uh, how you view the wor- world and, and how you see the world and perhaps uh, not allowing you to see to see things that you might not... What about not that, Laura, the, the idea that, that the business model itself fuels political polarisation? The business model that of the, Facebook... That, that the business model of Facebook of giving you more of what they've already discovered you want fuels a political polarisation and eliminates the process of, of serendipity, whether or not it, it existed in the past, as Harry described, that you, came, you come across points of view, perspectives, or indeed news stories that, that you don't, that, that haven't already been identified as the kinds of points of view or news stories that you're already interested well, well, in. Well, I mean, Facebook is, you know, often described as a technology company, but it's, it's really a media company because all of its revenues come from advertising. And it happens to have a lot of technology that helps it do that. Um, So really, in order for it to make the maximum amount it can from advertising, it needs the maximum amount of number of users on the on the platform to stay active, so that's when they start, you know, manipulating the newsfeed to, to make it as exciting what they, you know, as they say, as exciting as interesting as possible it is for you to, to, to keep you keep you hooked. So they've they, so they've you know they've set up the algorithm in this way. Whether it can continue continue to stay that way, I'm I'm not sure. I mean, I don't I don't know how long term. You know, they keep making changes, so I suspect there may be more changes. I just wanted to say, just in relation to Twitter, because obviously it's not quite as linear. Our feeds aren't as linear. We don't control them in the same way as maybe we did at the start. But I sort of although you do obviously choose to follow perhaps mostly people who agree with you politically or certainly aren't, you know, on the extreme, to the extreme opposite end of, of who you are. Um, but I, I, I slightly dispute the idea that Twitter is an echo chamber because were it not for Twitter, I simply would not have realised how much hate there is in the world for 
different groups, different groups of people who are not white, heterosexual men. Uh, it's absolutely shocking. I certainly in my, you know, I wouldn't come across the level of anti-Semitism that I see on Twitter uh, in just walking about from my house to uh, this uh, office. And just it's just so in that sense, I'm, I'm seeing quite extreme opposite views to mine. Uh, I'm not seeing people reinforcing my views. OK, well, let, let me take that on board and then put something to, to you, David. And I'm not saying, uh, because I don't think the evidence is remotely out there to say that the, the substantial number of people in certain states in the United States who switched from voting Barack Obama in 2012 to voting Donald Trump in uh, 2016. I'm not saying that happened because of because of Facebook or Twitter. But there is uh, a critique going about and and it, it often comes from quarters which have had an antipathy to new digital media in the first place anyway. But set that aside for a moment, which says that... That there is a there is a coarsening of debate which allowed Donald Trump, for example, in this election to say uh, and do things which no uh, previous presidential mainstream presidential candidate had done. There is uh, there is a legitimising of certain points of view which previously were not aired publicly in the, in in the same way, and that the the self publishing revolution epitomised by social media and prior prior to that by blogging has kind of led to that to to greater levels of extreme extremism and of course into political debate and which one that's, of those a, that's a big yeah. point <laughs> uh, basically ba- okay. ba- ba- basically that 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 the the digital revolution has has dragged the level of political discourse down and polarized political debate i think that what it's probably done is it has made debate more open um, and I think there there is an element of... So it's lifted a rock. Well, and I'm not sure it's, it's so, much, yeah, so much about lifting a rock, but the thing is, is that if you had previously minority views or what you thought were minority views or things that you might not have necessarily said around the dinner table to your, you know, to your friends or your family, suddenly you can find people on the internet that share the same views of, as you. And it doesn't really matter if your views are still in the minority. You can find thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that share the same views as you, that will consume the same kinds of stories, that will confirm the kinds of biases that you actually have. So that's why I think that's the, the kind of role that social media has played in a, in a particular way with regards to the uh, the role it's had in, in in debate, with regards to say for example Trump's use of social media, I mean he, you know he's even this week been referring to kind of Twitter as a beautiful thing because it's given him the kind of platform that he never would have had uh, uh, previously, and there have been consistent uh, uh, situations where Trump has for example tweeted things that a normal Twitter user would never get away with. And there is a, a question mark there whether it was in, say, Twitter's interest to give him a platform because of the new users it was bringing on, onto the platform. Twitter have these things called Twitter rules. Facebook have rules called the, their, their community standards. And you can consistently see a number of situations where any other user who had uh, said the kinds of things that Trump had said would get banned from the network. Really? Oh, well, I mean, one or two high-profile users have been have been banned. But there's, as, as Laura said already, Twitter is infested with hundreds of thousands of people saying things which breach those rules all the time. Absolutely. And there is a, a, a question over, you know, whether the uh, the social networks should actually police things, whether they have their rules, whether they actually enforce the rules, first of all, and whether they should take a more proactive role in uh, in controlling the conduct that users have on their network. And I know part of the, the, the calls have been for uh, Facebook to start blocking these fake news uh, sites. Um, it's gone halfway where it's actually just stopping uh, their money from uh, going into their coffers. But I'm not necessarily sure that's solves the actually uh, the actual problem. Now, some people listening to this podcast, Harry, 
will say there's a bunch of Irish Times journalists sitting around uh, I, I bet you they all hate the fact that Donald Trump has won the election and I'll hold up my hand and say yes I do um, and that this is an example of the echo chamber of the liberal media and what you see happening with these new small websites and most prominently in the in the last while with, with Breitbart News Network which is Steve Bannon is now you know going to be in the White House advising the president is is an insurgency against uh, against a cultural hegemony of a certain kind of liberal cultural elite and actually that, that that's what this election was about I think um, Andrew Breitbart who founded the founded Breitbart talked about politics being downstream of culture um, and that that, that okay. this is all about that in the end that culture was very Irish times Hugh <laughs> politics being downstream of culture yeah I'm just taking myself from the corner where I was silently weeping and gnashing my teeth um, the Trump there's a couple of paradoxes here. I mean, Facebook says that it's editorially neutral and it doesn't interfere, but there is evidence that it does interfere and it has editors uh, which have been very subtly manipulating uh, um, its its site uh, to, to highlight certain things, to, to put forward certain things that will that will contribute uh, to um, its uh, bottom line. In relation to blocking uh, on Twitter, that's it. You know, the, the problem is who who who. Referees, the referee. I mean, who decides what to block in in the political context? And I mean, a, a lot of Donald Trump's tweets were very offensive, but to go so far as to block them, I think, would be a step too far and might be uh, considered to be anti-democratic. And he used Twitter in an extraordinarily uh, um, effective way during the course of his campaign. Uh, his his the, every time that Donald uh, Trump tweeted, it just became uh, an event. And it had a domino effect that it just it, it resonated on Twitter. It resonated on all other social media. It resonated in, in newspapers and media organisations. And it resonated on TV. I think three days uh, before uh, the actual uh, election, his, uh, his um, campaign team actually banned him from Twitter and told him that he wasn't allowed to tweet anymore. Yeah, he appears to be back on now. Well, he's, he's, he certainly is back on now. But I mean, that they, 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 they misconstrued the effect and the impact that he was having. And they, should, they could have very well have left him on, on Twitter and he could have easily tweeted, as I wrote before in the Digest last week, uh, that if Hillary Clinton is elected president, she's going to ditch Air Force One in favour of a broomstick because she is a witch. And it wouldn't have made a whit of difference. It probably would have uh, increased his appeal uh, to those who voted uh, against him. And I don't know. There is some analysis that, or some suggestion that because his campaign team managed to keep him shut up in a room basically for the last two weeks and just doing rallies, that that actually benefited him in the polls in the end. I'm not quite sure uh, about that. I was looking at uh, um, a, a kind of video that Michael Moore did last night uh, that went viral. I think it actually went viral after the uh, election about a speech that, um, that, that Trump delivered in Ohio uh, to uh, to former auto workers and warning Ford that if it moved its operations to Mexico, that he'd introduce a tariff of thirty percent, and he was saying that that he, the the argument that he was making was that those messages that Trump was coming out they were uh, they were declamatory, they were outspoken, uh, in some cases they were offensive, and in many cases they were offensive, and sometimes even uh, egregious. But it resonated with a, a, with a huge cachet of people who felt that they were disenfranchised, who felt that they were excluded, and they were also and, motivated And, and, and isn't it true, to drag you back to my question, mm. such as it was, that, that in speeches of that sort and in tweets of that sort, Trump, a 
billionaire reality TV star was deemed by a large part of the electorate, even indeed some of the people who voted for Hillary Clinton, as being somehow more authentic than the kind of traditional politics represented well, by Hillary Clinton. Well, this is one of the uh, analyses that's been made by, 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 by those who, who were on Clinton's team at the present that they didn't sufficiently attack that. He, he, he portrayed himself uh, as the ultimate oxymoron. A, a blue-collar billionaire. I mean, such a thing doesn't exist. He was the guy who never had to work, really, for a living because it was his dad who made the money. And they never sufficiently attacked him uh, on that ground. And he was given full vent. And they, they, their campaign, that they, their, their blowback campaign, was far too polite because every time that they kind of came back and, and tried to rebut him, he just blew them out of the water with something that was even more outspoken and more outrageous. And people uh, in the liberal media tutted at it, but it seemed to have been very, very effective and it had impact and purchase with a huge swathe of the American population. I think we need to stop uh, talking about liberal media as if that's a bad thing. Liberal is a good thing. Liberal is not an insult. Uh, We should be proud of the fact that we're a liberal media. I can't quite believe that we have a president of the US who... um, regularly tweets um, with the word beginning with the word wow his tweets often go wow and I just can't, I, for everything that we know about that office that great office digni- dignity and everything else it, it, the historic uh, nature of a tradition is just <clears throat> out of whack with this uh, buffoon of a man I think a bigger problem even than fake news is the fact that Donald Trump is a liar and uh, unfortunately you know Hillary Clinton produced a video that that spliced his lies uh, you know he had an eclipse of him saying I didn't say that I didn't say that I didn't say that with footage audio video footage of him saying those very things that he denied having said and still people think it's made up people are denying now that Trump ever mocked a reporter with a disability even though there's video footage of him doing so they say that didn't happen and uh, I just I just the, the, the great lie of all of course is that he's going to make America great again I was very impressed with the um, endorsement of the Arizona Republic, a traditionally Republican newspaper, when they endorsed Clinton, they put it. They put. They said it straight about Trump. He he's not a conservative. He's a phony, and he's a reckless phony. And uh, you know, I, I, I'm I'm. I think this. People who aren't depressed about this election is, are, I don't know. I no, don't know I, I agree with you about from. that and I have very little time for some of the self-flagellation that I've seen in some quarters of the media, David. Speaking of which, there is a there is an opinion piece in today's newspaper by Declan Lawn, who's a, who's a BBC journalist, who talks, uh, who's been a journalist with Panorama for, for many years and I think Spotlight in Northern Ireland. And he suggests that the media, which is a very broad term in its own right anyway, has somehow lost touch with the reality of the lived life lives of people in. I think the kind of examples he gives as a BBC journalist are various deprived parts of the UK and Wales and northeastern England and so on and so forth and that that, that that it speaks too much with one voice and that the media itself is an echo chamber and that that criticism which is clearly articulated by Breitbart among other people has somehow hit home with the section of the electorate which we know in the United States and arguably which we're seeing with things like Brexit as well. Um. It, it really comes down to, in that situation, the ways in which um, people and in particular voters are consuming what our traditional uh, concepts of media actually are. 
Um, you know, Reuters Institute, I know I mentioned earlier on, the Reuters Institute did some uh, some research earlier in the year about how people are actually consuming uh, news um, online and on social media. And most people, when they're consuming the news, they don't actually pay much attention to where it's actually coming from. So they're not actually putting value judgments on who it is that actually produced it. They're not questioning the biases of actually who produced it. They're taking at, in a certain situation, you know, uh, um, at face value what the story actually is and what it's actually informing them about. But, you know, people are, are more and more going away from television sets, newspapers, unfortunately, um, can, and they're going and they're going online and they're consuming uh, media in, can, in can different Can I just ways. ask you one thing about that? Because the other big difference, it seems to me, between the way in which people traditionally consumed news that in, in the ways you've just described is that now by consuming certain things and pressing a like button or sharing something. They're also making a, a statement with each of those actions about themselves as well. So there's a kind of an identity statement going on there that didn't work in the same way when you were at home just watching your telly privately in your own sitting room. Um, I remember the late David Carr, actually, uh, when he was from the New York Times and he was over here a few years ago, talking about how at a certain stage when he was a young man, you wore your kind of your broadsheet newspaper, your New York Times or whatever, as a kind of piece of intellectual jewellery, he described it as, that that was a public statement of identity. But that's not the case anymore. Uh, but, but you do make a statement about your political allegiances and how, the, how those fit with your cultural identity and your social service now in social media, don't you? Yeah, uh, I mean, and you don't need to be putting an avatar, uh, a special avatar on to claim your adherence to a certain campaign, but by be, being seen to what what conservative critics call virtue signalling around certain issues and things like that. Well, I think the uh, the concept, for just as an example there, but a concept of, you know, changing your avatar to include a, a Trump logo or a, a Hillary uh, logo is actually around the, the, the concept of polarisation. You are actually, you know, you are putting your, 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 your colours mask saying this is the person I'm actually uh, 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 supporting and, and, and following and that kind of thing. Um, but actually in, in, in social media's terms, less and less so now as the algorithm has changed. I mean, and I do think it's, it is, that, that is something that we, we should actually talk about. But in terms of social media, its role, you know, a lot of people are saying, you know, well, actually now people are self-publishers and they're sharing the things that they're, they're reading. And so you post something out on Twitter or you post something on Facebook because these are the kinds of things that you want people to read that you've read or that you at least want people to think that you're actually uh, uh, reading. Sure. And that's the, the thing. And, and you know, the, it, this goes, then goes back to the concept of the echo chamber and, you know, whether there are people on social media. I had friends during the, during the uh, presidential campaign saying, um, trying to weed out their Trump supporter friends saying, if there's anybody here that's actually a Trump supporter, can they just let me know who they are so I can block them? And that kind of thing, because there's an element of, you know, you, you, you don't really want to have to engage with people. Uh, you just want to read the things that you already uh, and agree Twitter with. And Twitter has uh, extended its mute uh, capacity, I see. So th- there is a capacity for Twitter to become more, even more of an echo chamber, as I said, I defended it earlier, but there is that capacity for everybody to shut down into their own little... Absolutely, and there are other social media tools that you can have that are part of Twitter and Facebook that actually let you filter out uh, certain pieces of, uh, of of content and journalism that contain words that you don't want to read about. Harry? Yeah, there is, I mean, I, I know, I mean, I mean, listen, I spent my whole life being accused on Twitter of being an establishment stoogie, you know, and being inside the bubble and inside the beltway and being one of those kind of Marion Street guys and being a supporter of the government and being a member of the mainstream media. 
And um, the, the, I mean, I'd, I'd reject that. But I, I do say that, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is in the States that, that the, the, whatever the shortcomings of its electoral system, and every, every electoral system has its shortcomings, he won the debate. And it wasn't just people over here have some sense that those who voted for Trump uh, were kind of gun-toting, kind of rural uh, Midwesterners, uh, people with the whole kind of quiver of prejudices on their shoulder. But I mean, when you look at the kind of the demographics and look at the social backgrounds of people who uh, um, uh, uh, people who supported uh, Trump, you'll find that that a lot of, you know, people educated uh, white middle class people voted for Trump as well. Some voted for visceral reasons, but there were some who who voted because they felt that um, they didn't trust the Clintons, they didn't trust the establishment. There were many reasons why they voted. Not all of them. Uh, were 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 reason like for example, Laura's talking about him being a liar. I mean, the same accusation could be levelled at the Clintons, uh, especially uh, Bill Clinton in the past. He was he was exposed as being a person who lied, and there, there, um, Hillary, because she supported him, was drawn into that. So their their record. I'm not trying to compare them and say that that they're equivalent to Trump, but you you could in some instances you could throw some of the same uh, accusations in in the direction of of the Clintons. Uh, as well. But the, the net point I was making is that there, 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 sometimes the media is not really um, um, as, as um, observant to, to other voices as it should be. And I know from going out canvassing with politicians that when you go out to, to certain areas, you'll hear a huge amount of antipathy uh, to, uh, to immigrants, people who came in and there are all these kind of perceptions which aren't true that they're that they're you know getting accommodation in front of 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 local people that they're getting free money that they're getting taxis here and there that they're getting all types of preferences and m- most of those are without foundation but at the, at the same time this is a view that people have now luckily in Ireland uh, that type of view isn't strong enough or isn't dominant dominant enough uh, it to, certainly to, doesn't to, have any, politi- any successful political expression. No, there's no political outlet for it uh, at present. And we've seen it happening in Britain with, with the, the Brexiteers. We're seeing it happening in Italy at the moment. And we're also possibly going to see it happening uh, in France as well. And we saw it happening in the States uh, with Trump. I mean, Trump tapped in to that type of, 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 of fear. And I'm not saying that that's right, but I'm saying that sometimes the, the media... Is is not as aware of it as it should be. Is because that because of the geographical and class biases of the uh, media? Yes, to a certain extent, yes. And we're the, at a coastal elite. We're only five hundred yards from the Irish Sea here, so we're definitely in the coastal elite. Well, yeah, I'm not saying. I mean, I, I wouldn't go with that theory. I think that that's a very simplistic. I mean, just them versus us, a very simplistic way of doing it. But the point that I'm trying to make is that that sometimes there are views and and, and perceptions out there that the media don't cotton on to, and it should, and it doesn't take them into account uh, when, when, when it's analysing why a particular political candidate is doing better than, than, than another. And maybe the Clinton campaign ignored uh, the white working class um, uh, and went after other kind of softer kind of uh, groups. Another argument which is made is that is that legitimate concerns or real existing concerns, let's let me put it that way, on the path, on part of certain parts of society about political policies on issues such as immigration haven't been taken seriously or have been too rapidly character- characterised as being purely racist. Well, that, that's a very valid point and I think it's, it's something that's worth exploring.
I think we can see in this election that um, a candidate who was racist, sexist, homophobic and made many pointed remarks about people with disabilities, about Muslims, about Mexicans, um, was elected by about 27% of the eligible electorate and that for those people, none of those things were a deal breaker. So they may have had many of other concerns, but I think that's what what has uh, completely dismayed um, people who are upset about this result is that this wasn't just a hint of racism or a hint of sexism. It was the most, uh, you know, outrageous stuff that we've ever seen. He's not like any other candidate. He's not like any other Republican. Um, I just want—I just wanted to say one more thing, just about how the media should do better. However, and if mm. you don't mind, I'll take an example from from Britain. At the weekend, the Sun's. Uh, published a story that, that, that showed Jeremy Corbyn or suggested that he had jigged somehow on the way to the Senate off on memor- uh, as they were commemorating the, 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 the war dead. And it wasn't true. It's just not true. And that kind of thing undermines what are very, the very many legitimate criticisms of, that people in the media have, commentators of Jeremy Corbyn, because readers see this thing from the sun, pathetic thing and just they, they they look at the media and say well, well they're all biased and yeah and, and doesn't that mean that everybody ends up back back, back in these silos and before and I do want to ask you about the, the the algorithm thing and I will come back to that David but but it, it, just listening to what Harry's saying and what Laura's saying there is one of the things that strikes me is that back in the 90s in American politics people talked about culture wars all the time and then that was supposed to have kind of gone away but in a way the culture wars have returned with a vengeance here where a figure like Trump this whole question which is a really core question is how come, I know it's only 27% of the electorate, but 27% of the electorate voted for somebody who had, who had expressed the views which, which Laura describes here. That people were doing it because, because essentially, uh, because it became an election about cultural identity. And part of that was because of the Democratic policy, uh, the Democratic Party's policy of, of, of its, its, uh, its so-called new coalition, which was supposed to be, you know, it was supposed to be something that was going to guarantee at the presidential election for, for years to come. But that new coalition of educated whites, um, African-Americans, other people of colour, uh, the LGBT community and a number of other areas actually set off an adverse reaction of what is now being described as white ethno-nationalism on the other side. And Everybody's getting thrown into these uh, into, into these dreadful sectarian silos, basically. Well, just pick up Harry's saying that the reason why um, Donald Trump got elected is because he won the debate, and that's a very good that's the point that your presidential campaign was a debate. But actually, I think that the the question that actually hasn't been asked uh, and answered effectively yet is where the debate was actually held during the uh, during the campaign. Now. Trump's uh, uh, advisers have been um, out over the past few days and actually saying that it was social media where they actually uh, uh, won the uh, won the campaign. Trump's campaign spent something like ninety million dollars on Facebook advertising um, during the uh, campaign. They said it was the most effective way for them to uh, to raise money. They raised two hundred and fifty million dollars uh, on the back of, of Facebook campaigning. They were running. 50,000 different kinds of ads per day to see what kind of messages and what kinds of calls to action were actually uh, were actually working. And the if you compare to that, Hillary's campaign was spending 30 million and was spending $200 million on television uh, ads. Now, one of the things that's so attractive to candidates in the US on television ads is that the television uh, networks have to charge the, the base level. They can't increase the price for uh, candidates because of uh, demand, so it's very attractive to them. 
And this goes back to uh, then to uh, Lauren and the way she was talking about the different styles and the dignity of the office. Where Hillary ran a dignified campaign, uh, which was very broadcast uh, orientated, where Trump did nothing of the sort. He would, you know, he'd reply occasionally to uh, to tweets that were sometimes bonkers, but it gave people the impression that he was a blue collar worker, that he was just like one of them, despite the fact that he had billions of dollars allegedly. Um, and that was a completely different way of uh, of campaigning. And so I think that, you know, there is a, a question now, for example, for the social networks about what role do they actually had. And, you know, Facebook will say, well, they're not a media company, they're a tech company. However, their own people have been posting news stories in the past couple of days to say how influential Facebook was in the uh, in, in, in the campaign. In the final week of the campaign, according to uh, USA Today, um, uh, there were a billion interactions with Trump-related uh, posts on Facebook in the final week of the uh, of the campaign. So, talk to me about the algorithms then, and what what what's happening with the algorithms. And there's some argument, perhaps, that that these algorithms should be exposed to public view. Okay, so the algorithm is Facebook's secret sauce. Its whole job is to keep you using Facebook for as long as possible. So it'll show you posts with that it thinks that you'll like. So the more you click on things, you interact with things, it'll show you more of them. And it's not just from uh, certain publications, it's from your friends. Some of your friends on Facebook, you won't be seeing their posts because you don't interact with them uh, more. And that influences the kinds of things that you see. Now, Facebook claims that this is code, so it's not uh, uh, you know, humanly uh, uh, controlled, but it still it's has an impact. value neutral, they would, they would claim. They would claim that it's, it, well, not necessarily value neutral, but it's the value of the user. So they're actually trying to predict what it is that the user wants to see and what will keep them on for longer. And there are now and, you know, there are different kinds of algorithms. It, there's a different algorithm that controls search results. If you're logged into uh, to your Gmail account, you're going to see a different set of results than if you were uh, logged out in search. And there are now questions, and these are questions have been ongoing, about whether these algorithms should actually be more transparent and public. Even uh, Angela Merkel uh, last week at a, a Munich media conference said that the networks and social media networks and search engines actually had a responsibility to be more transparent about the role that they have in terms of speech and what they're actually showing to people that are their and their entire business model is based on these algorithms, so they're going to resist any kind of exposure of, of that, aren't they? Absolutely. They're, the, the, and the, the, the big challenge is through the, you know, the EU trying to get more transparency out of the networks and the networks being more US-centric, where they have certain protections where they say, well, actually, we don't have to show what, you know, how these things actually I mean, work. you do have to laugh at Zuckerberg saying that they weren't influential because, of course, you know, not, you know advertisers are, are being told every day that, that Facebook is incredibly advertising. Otherwise, why were they advertised on Facebook? Facebook. And the other irony, of course, is that Silicon Valley um, is, is, is completely pro-Democrat, pro-Clinton, and have probably been the most vocally horrified about the Trump election out of any out of any. Hence this kind of insurgency sector. within the ranks you know, of Facebook itself. Clinton actually wants to regulate a whole load of other sectors uh, whose, whose share prices uh, promptly shot up when they were delighted they would they be living in this Trump universe where they wouldn't be interfered with at all. Uh, but, but the but the tech companies uh, were, were, were firmly pro-Clinton. Finally, Harry, I want to ask you, I mean, this, this podcast usually covers domestic politics and you'll be heading up to Leinster House probably later on. Um, would it feel like you're stepping back a generation in time to a simpler, calmer place? When kind of uh, industrial disputes were uh, workaday, yeah, it's... it's um Sometimes we, we, we curse our, our, our parliamentary process from time to time, but um, now at this particular moment, it's looking like a particularly good model. I mean, our model is a very representative model. People give out about um, PRSTV all the time. 
but it, what it, the difficulty with it is, is as, as we've seen in the last election, it doesn't deliver decisive results, unlike Britain, where it's first past the post and a party with 33% of the popular support can become the party of government with a respectable majority, maybe 35 or 36%, whereas here, uh, because smaller parties... Uh, will get a, a proportional parliamentary representation. It's more difficult for the largest parties, especially in this more fragmented uh, society that we live in, uh, to form uh, a majority. So um, that's the, 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 the downside. That's the, the kind of the upside. The downside is that if, if times become difficult and the government is, is expected to make difficult choices, and we see, we're seeing that with the pay talks at the moment, and we'll see it with climate change, and we'll see it uh, with uh, a situation if the economy deteriorates, they're going to have to make, they're going to have a huge difficulty in making decisions that aren't crowd pleasers, uh, decisions that will involve pain uh, for taxpayers, because you have so many disparate voices within government and so many disparate voices adding to the coalition. Uh, it just does not lend itself uh, to making difficult choices. And we haven't had a major crisis yet since this government has been formed. But if we do have a major crisis, be it an economic one or want to do a climate change or want to do with a social issue, uh, I, I, I think that, that uh, the, 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 uh, the architecture of the government can prove itself to be very fragile indeed and can fall apart. But, you know, we, we trundle on. We're going to have a kind of slight winter of discontent in terms of pay talks. Um, but um, they, the government, which didn't look like it would survive uh, for more than six months, now looks like it could last for another year and perhaps even another two years. Laura, you had one other point you wanted to make about social media. I just wanted to say, and I don't want to lecture people, but... Oh, please do. Please be careful what you share, because I've seen people share things about people who are who I completely despise, like Trump uh, and like uh, Mike Pence, that are you know not necessarily true. You please just check back, try and find an original source. He didn't say necessarily all those things that are going around, um, that you know on screen grabs. You know some of these are fake as well. So just 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 be hesitant. Right, a word of warning. Laura Slattery, Harry McGee, David Cochran, thanks very much for joining us. Now, the word populism is bandied around an awful lot these days in relation to politics, and it's certainly at the forefront of the news agenda following Donald Trump's election last week. John B. Judas is the author of The Populist Explosion, How the Great Recession Transformed American and European Politics. Uh, the book was published only a couple of weeks ago, and I talked to him earlier. John Judas, what is your definition of populism? Um, there, There is no uh, definition of populism that would pick out every... Um, instance uh, in which it's used. Uh, for instance, uh, Putin has sometimes been called a populist, Ronald Reagan's populist, uh, Bernie Sanders. So if you can find something in common exclusively with all those, you're a genius. Um, what I talk about is a political tradition that begins in the United States in the 1880s and 1890s. And that's really, that's where the word populism comes from and spreads to Western Europe in the uh, 1970s or so, and becomes a major player in European politics in the, uh, in, in the 1990s. Um, the distinguishing characteristic of it is this kind of clash between something called the people and something called the elite or establishment. And what constitutes the people and what constitutes the establishment changes from uh, generation to generation. 
Um, just as a, for instance, the Tea Party in the United States uh, began by attacking liberal Democrats uh, as the elite in Washington and ended up attacking their the treasonous uh, Republican leadership as that became their main enemy. So uh, Wall Street sometimes, uh, sometimes the billionaire class, so on. What's important is this, again, this conflict, this clash between the people and, uh, and, and an elite. Uh, there's different kinds of populism. Do you want me to talk about that a little? Yeah, but before we do, and we come to that in a sec, does that kind of definition or broad description mean that that it has to be a movement of, of opposition, really, as opposed to yes, a movement absolutely. of government? I mean, that's the way it starts. And the uh, po populist demands are characteristically things that the establishment, the leadership uh, in wh wherever you want to uh, call it, Paris or Washington, um, is unwilling to grant, and meaning usually the leadership of both the major parties. Um, Bernie Sanders in the United States, Medicare for all, uh, free college education uh, for everybody who want, who goes to a, a public college. Now those are those aren't crazy demands. I mean, they had Canada, Western Europe. You have those things, but in the United States, given the the gridlock in Washington, they're not something that people are willing to uh, uh, grant now. Um, Trump, 45% tariff on Japan, uh, Chinese goods and unless they um, comply with his demands about currency. 35% uh, tariff on exports that uh, sh companies that move uh, to Mexico try to send back to the United States. So those aren't things that are ever going to really get through. I mean, he'll have to modify them. But in the course of an election, they really define uh, this difference between the people and the establishment. But, but, but isn't it the case that, that in, in all political realities, whether in European countries or in the United States, political movements, particularly if they're new political movements, they may have an aspiration to power, but they may start from polemical perspectives, which probably in their heart of hearts, they know they're not going to achieve in their totality 100%, but they're the start, what you might call the starting negotiating position. Well, uh, sure. But, you know, in uh, America, the populist movements are more episodic, and uh, that, that's because of the two-party system. And we tend to move everything toward the center in elections until there's some kind of a crisis, until a prevailing census, consensus uh, breaks down in the country. In Europe, you have populist parties that, la you know, have lasted 30, 40 years because there's a multi-party system and they can hang around with seven or 10 percent of the vote. And when they get 23 percent, they might, might even be in power. So, um, yeah, beginning parties, but also parties that continue. I suppose because one of the, the critiques, and we have it here in, in our political system in Ireland, I think you'll see it everywhere, of, you know, populism is often, the word populist is often used as, a, as an insult or a criticism of some sort. And right. usually in that instance, it comes freighted with the idea that the people who are, who are putting forward those policies are not serious uh, because those policies are unable to be realised. So they're just putting them forward for a cheap, short-term electoral gain? Well, I, you know, I think uh, you, you really wouldn't say that about Brexit and the um, and UKIP in uh, Great Britain. I, I mean, if somebody is going to um, advocate uh, interplanetary transfers or something like that, then you'd say, well, they're just goofy. Um, 
for the most part, what you see with, with populist parties and campaigns, particularly in the United States, are demands that are conceivable. They're not things that, that are, are beyond the imagination, but that in actual enactment as time goes by have to be somewhat modified down. Uh, Huey Long in the 1930s actually was advocating a guaranteed annual income. Now, in the United States in the 1930s, um, that, that wasn't going to happen. But Roosevelt, pressured by him, ended up uh, doing what's called the Second New Deal, where Social Security, unemployment compensation, really the, the heart of what became the American welfare state, was born out of that. So, yeah, they can't be, the demands can't be just crazy, but... You but have a at yes, the indeed. Same time, they have to be ones that are currently being resisted. Yes, and in a way that fits into. I mean, I take the title of your book. You know, and you know, framing this populist explosion against the backdrop of of the Great Recession. The idea of of of, of what some critiques describe as neoliberalism, and uh, perhaps even the kind of the end of history moment. So now, so comprehensively debunked uh, since the fall of the Berlin Wall. But the idea that the big ideological arguments were over, and there were certain fixed economic parameters within which politics should take place. Populism of both left and right challenged that as a notion don't they? Uh, absolutely. Uh, in, in the United States, in some ways, it's less complicated. Uh, in, in Europe, you have the uh, the European Union itself as a major issue and uh, its imposition of, of austerity on some, especially on the South. And uh, uh, on the other hand, the uh, Schengen uh, free immigration within the borders, asylum seekers. So, yeah, I, I in the United States, what what um, what both Trump and Sanders were attacking was uh, an additional feature of um, uh, neoliberalism that, you know, sometimes you pop, it certainly has popped up in France is uh, capital mobility. The idea that corporations can move wherever they want in the world uh, so that if an American company uh, wants to lower its costs, uh, it can move to China, Mexico, or wh what have you, even if that leaves workers in the lurch. Uh, that's very much under attack. Uh, but that was part of a consensus that came about in the 1970s and the 1980s about both uh, capital mobility and labor mobility. Sure. And in terms of that critique then and that analysis, you have a very interesting take on the difference between left-wing populism and right-wing populism in the way it defines that, 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 that conflict, that critique of elites, which you described at the outset of this conversation. Yeah, and I wish I had a different uh, term for them than left or right, and I'll say why in a second. Um, the uh, left-wing popu populism, uh, the United States, uh, Huey Long, Bernie Sanders, the original People's Party, tries to unite the bottom and the middle of the society against the top. There's just a, It's a two-way relationship uh, between the people and the elite, and there's nothing else uh, involved. Uh, with... Uh, the right-wing populism, for instance, Trump or George Wallace or Marine Le Pen, um, you get a third element entering. They, too, attack the establishment from the basis of the people and share many of the same issues, for instance, on trade in the United States. Sanders and Trump are virtually identical. But there's another element, which is the idea that these Elites are coddling a, 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 an outgroup, um, Muslims, African-Americans, 
uh, illegal immigrants or what have you, uh, that that is somehow being allowed, given privileges um, that the middle class, the people have to pay for, have to sacrifice for. So that's the that's the third element. The thing that becomes uh, misleading sometimes when I talk about this is that, you know, the the so-called right-wing populist parties in Europe, like the National Front, on many domestic issues are way, way, way to the left of the American Democratic Party. Uh, you know, nationalization of banks, cutting off credit card charges, all, all this kind of stuff. So, yes, there there's a, there's a distinction between left and right, but it has to be kept in mind that these right-wing populist parties are not conventional Conserve business conservative parties. Uh, they have elements that blend left and right. So if that's not too confusing, that's no, how, well. I that's I I, I, I think it's not confusing. It, it describes perhaps a kind of a, a great confusion which is out there and which we're all endeavouring to figure out. I mean, it, in the run up to the the presidential election last week, many people thought that the discussion that would be taking place afterwards was the implosion of the Republican Party reflecting those very divisions between two very different visions of what conservatism and 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 the populist right might be. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I was among the damn fools who thought that that was going to uh, uh, happen. And uh, in fact, uh, the, the uh, big division that's, uh, that may open up is on the Democratic side as well, um, between the sort of Silicon Valley, Wall Street, neoliberal wing that uh, epitomized in many ways by Hillary Clinton, though she changed her positions on the platform. But I think that that's she's a part of that tradition and the uh, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren part of the party. I think that there's a there is a clash coming there. What do you make of the analysis? And there's been a lot of it around over the last week that sees in the pop, many of the forces behind the election of Donald Trump and many of the forces behind the rise of populist parties such as the Fond National or Geert Wilders in the Netherlands that sees in them ultimately a lot of similarities with totalitarian right-wing and fascist movements of the 1920s and the 1930s, the interest in a strong man, the suspicion of ethnic outsiders, the the longing for a strong state, the reassertion of some form of national values. There do seem to be some parallels there, don't there? Well, I, I'd make two, two distinctions between um, the movements now and the... Um, let's say the 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 uh, nazis and the italian fascists of the 1920s uh the first is that those those groups in europe arose in the wake of the russian revolution and the widely perceived threat of of a, a socialist or communist revolution uh in europe both germany and and italy uh their, that was their initial objective to us to us to wipe them out. The Germans, the Nazis, the Jews were a target, but the key target politically was were the socialists and communists. Uh, those groups, uh, they were armed. They never uh, envisaged, um, uh, you could say, uh, uh, reviving, invigorating uh, German or Italian democracy. On the contrary, it was simply a means to power. Um, Mussolini looked back upon them, the Caesars, uh, not, a, not, he didn't, uh, he, he was not a Democrat in that sense, a liberal Democrat. Um, 
American populist movements, our populist tradition is still embedded within a, a democracy, parties competing for power, people running in elections. Uh, Western Europe, I think that's largely the case too. I mean, if you look at the Danish party, for instance, they've changed their leadership. They don't have a, uh, uh, you know, what you would describe as a charismatic um, uh, man on a white horse that's leading everybody around. These parties have been in power. They've been out of power. Um, in other words, the context is different. And the context is different in another very key way. The, uh, the, the fascists and Nazis of the uh, 1920s, and in the, the, now we're talking about in the wake of World War I, uh, wanted to revive empires. Mussolini, the old Roman Empire, uh, Germ uh, Nazis, the Third Reich. The um, nationalists, the populist movements now are almost, you could say, narrowly nationalist. They want to throw out uh, supranational um, entities like the European Union. In the United States, uh, Trump doesn't want to uh, take over Mexico. He wants to keep um, Mexican immigrants out of the United States. He doesn't want to take over the Middle East. He wants to pull our troops out. So, again... The, the historical context is really different. And I think that those analogies are very misleading and so get, get people away from understanding what the real uh, problems are. I mean, if, if I can add one other thing, maybe that might interest you. If you think about the 19th century, the left, the socialist left in the 19th century, every time something would happen in 1830, 1848, 1871, would think that they were recreating the French Revolution. This was like a kind of lodestar for all the thinking. Um, and of course, that from their standpoint was a good thing. Um, the same, we have the same habit. Whenever something bad happens, it's, you know, it's the Nazis, it's the fascists coming back and misleading in both cases. So you view recent events with a certain equanimity then? No, I don't view them with equanimity at all. I just don't think that the uh, that uh, ca calling uh, these people Nazis or fascists or proto-Nazis or proto-fascists is a fruitful way to look at what they were doing. Well, that's fair enough. <laughs> that, 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 that's a point well made. My producer's making uh, clock-watching motions at me, but I do have to ask you one more question because the book went to uh, went to print be, before the election. The difference between all the American populist movements which you describe in the book and this current moment is that this guy actually made it to the White House. Yes, and, and that... Cerise in Greece made it to the White House of, of Greece, you know, to mm. the... They took control of the government. And when that happens, the, the, the question that arises is, are they now part of the establishment and are going to come to terms with, uh, with themselves as establishment and uh, make, be stuck with the same kind of compromises? Um, and that's, exact, that's exactly really what's happened in Greece. And I think Syriza is going to be out of power just because they weren't be able to uh, keep their original promise of um, fighting the EU on austerity. Um, Trump, it's, you know, the, it, it, the, the jury's out. We don't know yet how he's going to conduct himself. Latin America populists sometimes pick out an enemy, another, a continuing enemy. Uh, 
the rule another ruling class, uh, foreigners, whatever. So you can sustain a populist movement and a populist appeal. You just have to sort of shift enemies. But I think in the United States, it's really uh, going to be um, uh, difficult for Trump to maintain the kind of populist fervor and the kind of demands that he made um, during the election. We shall see. John Judas, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Sure, my pleasure. And John B. Judas's book, The Populist Explosion, is published by Columbia Global Reports. It's available as an e-book for $8.99. You can do the math yourself of what that means in euros. That's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember that you can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or find me on Twitter at hlinehan and your views are always very welcome indeed. But until the next time... Goodbye and thanks very much for listening.